The United Nations has identified homelessness as a human rights issue with social, economic, and political factors of poverty and inequality being the main cause. I'm Skynell Hughes, and on this episode of 360 View, we're going to look at whether housing should be considered a right, and if so, whose responsibility it would be to guarantee. Let's get started. The United Nations has documented there are around 1.6 billion people residing in poor housing worldwide, and 15 million people each year being forcibly evicted. Now, some of the countries which have particularly high levels of homelessness include the United States, India, Brazil, Russia, and several countries in Europe. In many developing countries, homelessness is a growing problem due to a rapid urbanization and rising housing costs. In conflict-affected countries, displacement and forced migration can also contribute to homelessness. Now, homelessness can have significant economic costs for communities, including increased health care costs, law enforcement costs, and lost productivity. In fact, according to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, a person experiencing chronic homelessness costs the American taxpayer an average of $35,000 a year. And that's just the average cost for the U.S., with other countries spending more. Now, the UN has called for a comprehensive and a coordinated approach to addressing homelessness involving governments, civil society organizations, and other stakeholders. Now, their approach is on a human rights framework, but does it accurately address the needs and perspectives of those who are directly affected by homelessness? And does this not include the individual without a home? So to discuss, I want to bring in Leoni Afera, Global Director of The Shift, which is a group aimed at the global movement to secure the right to housing. Thanks for joining us. So I have to ask you, what are the current UN housing goals as they stand right now? So there's different uh, goals within the UN system with respect to housing. There's the sustainable development goals that should be realized by 2030. And in those goals, there's a whole set of them. There's 17 or something like that. One of them says that everyone should have secure, affordable, decent housing, and that that should be accomplished again by 2030. So that would mean ending homelessness by 2030. That would mean ensuring affordable housing for everyone by 2030. That would mean no evictions into homelessness, for example. Uh, so quite a ambitious and ambitious goal. Uh, beyond that, governments from around the world have committed to the right to housing through international human rights law. And so they've signed and ratified a whole array of treaties that actually say, you know, we commit to the right to housing and in different contexts. So with respect to racial discrimination, so there should, you know, states around the world have committed to no racial discrimination with respect to housing, uh, with respect to women, with respect to children, with respect to persons with disabilities. So there's a, there's a lot that the international community has committed to and has to achieve in a pretty short period of time. What are the factors do you believe contribute to the growing homeless population around the world? You said this is a major part of the UN's goals. How many of these factors can be controlled by the government? Oh, I mean, I think that in most cases, uh, homelessness is manufactured by governments. 
And I say that, and I'm not trying to be um, cheeky, I say that because governments have adopted a whole range of laws and policies that are contributing to homelessness. And so my starting point is this. If governments took seriously that everyone has the human right to housing and that their laws and policies could make or break that right, then governments should have been on a path to ensuring that everything they do really um, allows for people to have adequate, secure, affordable housing. That's not what's happened. In fact, governments have taken a whole bunch of decisions that are, as I said, manufacturing or creating homelessness. Decisions like removing themselves from providing social housing for those most in need. So many governments took a big step back from the provision of deeply affordable housing or public housing uh, back in the 70s and 80s and, and into the 90s. And um, in so doing, they, they said, okay, we're going to leave this to the private market. The private market didn't see fit to start providing deeply affordable housing for those most in need because it's not profitable. And so that's just one example of a decision taken by governments that has had a direct impact on uh, increasing homelessness. They've also, many governments, have um, created tax systems that really incentivize um, the uh, corporate ownership of housing. And that has, we've found, especially in recent years, had really bad effect for tenants. Because when you get into big investor-driven housing or investor-owned housing, really for them, the bottom line is, you know, making money. And making money means raising rents. Raising rents means housing's unaffordable and people lose their housing and often fall into homelessness. So again, an example where governments took a proactive decision to, for example, exempt certain institutional investors in housing from paying corporate tax or from paying income tax um, and from paying capital gains tax. Those sorts of things can lead directly to homelessness. Now, there is a direct correlation between drug use and homelessness. In America's cities like San Francisco, Denver, with the most liberal drug policies, have the highest homeless rate. Should countries take this into consideration and enact more laws to restrict drugs rather than legalize them? First of all, the correlation I like to draw is between high income generating areas and jurisdictions and homelessness. So you'll see, for example, California has the fourth largest economy in the world. They're, the economy of California, the GDP, is larger than Germany's, and California has half the population of Germany. In the last two years, California's GDP has increased, as has its level of homelessness. If you look around the world, where are we seeing some of the worst levels of homelessness in developed Western countries. So there's a direct, the correlation I like to draw is the direct correlation between um, rich and affluent jurisdictions and homelessness, first of all. Second of all, what I'd say about drug use and homelessness, what I have found in my experience, and I have met with homeless people in every region of the world, uh, I've been up and down California, for example. I've been across Canada. I've met with homeless people in all sorts of circumstances. One, I think there is um, an overemphasis on the amount of 
people living in homelessness who actually are drug dependent, first of all. Second of all, my experience has been that many people had never touched drugs, never engaged with drugs until they became homeless. And that's, and, and you know, we have to understand what it's like to live in homelessness. You know, at the end of a really hard working week or work day, what do many people do? Many people will have a beer, have a glass of wine. And why do we do that? We do that to kind of numb ourselves just a little bit from the harshness of the day, the harshness of the reality, the harshness of grandma who's dying in a hospital, for example, the, the harshness of living with COVID, right? So imagine if you're on the streets, living on the streets, what it might be like to live on the streets. One's natural inclination might very well to be, be to numb that experience. And so being street involved can lead to drug dependency. I, I think there's this misperception that always oh, you're drug dependent, therefore you become homeless. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I'm just saying we do have to understand the relationship between being street involved, living in the harshest circumstances, really hanging by a thread to life itself, and then that need to, to self-medicate. For personally, I do understand that. Um, and so now, that's not to say, and I'm not trying to deny that that there is a relationship between uh, people living on the street and and access to drugs and drug use. And so that is exactly why what we need are policies that ensure access to adequate, secure, and affordable housing for people who are living on the streets. Once we house people, we can then start dealing with any kind of dependencies or any kind of psychosocial problems, any kind of health problems, etc. But absolutely the cornerstone to well-being, we know this, is decent, affordable, secure housing. In many cities close to public transportation, you can only find apartments or homes for rent. Is the lack of affordable homes to purchase a contributing factor or preventing people from being able to buy their own home? As you said, it's more profitable to keep raising rents than to sell someone a unit at a fixed rate for 30 years. Yeah, so we used to uh, live in a world, at least in the U.S. and in Canada, uh, where... You know, you might leave home to go to school and you might live in student accommodation and then you might um, transition to an apartment and then, you know, you might get a job after leaving school, get a job, you're paying your rent, but you have enough money at the end of every month to put into savings. And then over time, you could save and purchase a home. That reality is gone. If, if people are spending the bulk of their income on rent, how can they save for homes. And as the price of homes goes up, it becomes harder and harder to save. But so too do rents. And so home ownership becomes, you know, a distant dream, a past dream, um, um, but definitely not a reality. So there's absolutely a correlation between the pressure on the rental market and one's ability or inability to purchase a home. A lot of the push, it seems, is to help people in urban environments find homes. But isn't the problem urbanization itself. I mean, the massive increase of people moving off the land to the cities to find work has given us this shanty towns we see globally. Is there any initiative that can help people move back to rural areas and live a de-urbanized life in a farming community, for example? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you identify a very important 
uh, phenomenon, urbanization, and the fact that most jobs are in urban centers, which is why people are leaving rural areas where they can't make ends meet, they can't earn a living, uh, and moving to cities. Also, I mean, we have to understand that for some young people, there's the lure of the city, right? And the idea of living in a big city or, you know, bigger than, you know, a rural community. Um, so though that's a reality. But as uh, we're talking about here, uh, it's an expensive reality. And wages are just simply not keeping a pace with the cost of housing. Um, I have seen, um, especially since COVID, actually, which is pretty interesting, um, some movement toward trying to figure out how can we um, ensure that smaller towns, villages, and even rural areas retain populations. And the only way to do that is to ensure there are employment opportunities there. Um, I heard that in Sweden, they were really trying to revive the idea of living in smaller villages and towns and moving employment there or making those towns and villages quite self-sufficient, which would mean having a bakery, having a small-scale farming, um, you know, all the uh, services, a, a hairdresser, a bar, a cafe, etc., all the things that you would expect to have and need to have to live a good life uh, in a village. And so trying to um, make that happen. Of course, um, we saw that many, many jobs can be done remotely. If you're in a non-service industry, um, in a white collar kind of job, it can be done remotely. And so that also offers opportunity, but there has to be decent housing and there has to be amenities because people who are working online expect yoga studios and cafes and et cetera, right? So we would have to make sure that where people are locating it, that's more reasonably um, um, or less, less expensive or more affordable, that they actually have the services uh, that they need. There are also infrastructure issues around that. So, of course, governments have to get their heads around, well, how are we going to ensure transportation? Because people will still want to go to city center for cultural events, for example, maybe for important medical procedures. Um, so there will be infrastructure needs um, that will be required, as well as on-site, you know, energy and um, uh, access to the internet and all th those sorts of things. What if national governments choose not to enact U.N. policies regarding housing initiatives? Is that something the U.N. is already willing to accept? I mean, you said the goal is 2030. Or will there be some kind of sanction coming from the U.N. towards those nations? Mm. Yeah, so the, the U.N. Secretary General has um, expressed concern that states around the world are not going to meet their 2030 goals. Um, there is uh, no real sanctioning capacity uh, by the UN for the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so, so there, that's one answer. Um, that being said, I did mention that states or governments have signed and ratified international law uh, through a variety of treaties. With every treaty, there is a UN committee that is attached to that treaty. And that committee's job is to review government compliance with the treaty. So every five years, governments are reviewed for their compliance with different treaties. And that's an opportunity for committees to make a set of recommendations to try to hold the government accountable. Now, they are just a set of recommendations. So it's really up to civil society back home and governments to go back home and actually implement those recommendations. That doesn't always happen. And again, there isn't always a way to sanction uh, governments. Um, there are some mechanisms within the UN system where there's like 
almost like a judicial hearing uh, where a government can be held accountable in a more serious way. But the government has to have signed a very particular instrument saying that they allow themselves to be open to that mechanism. And not all governments have signed all of those um, um, all of the mechanisms that are available. So so, you know, what, what what does this mean? It means that we need governments to take seriously their international human rights commitments and develop mechanisms of accountability back home so that they can be held accountable by the people who are so depending on them to do what's necessary for people to have a good life. Thank you so much. You know what? I want to continue this conversation, so stick around. Because after the break, we are going to continue the discussion with Leilani Farah and ask about if housing has ever been considered a right by a country. Hi, I'm Rick Sanchez. And I'm here to plead with you, whatever you do, do not watch my new show. Seriously, why watch something that's so different? Why listen to opinions that you won't get anywhere else? Look, if it pleases you to have the State Department, the CIA, weapons makers, multi-billion dollar corporations choose your facts for you, go ahead. Why change? And whatever you do, don't watch my show. Stay mainstream, because I'm probably going to make you uncomfortable. My show is called Direct Impact. But again, you probably don't want to watch it, because it might just change the way you think. started out as a Wall Street investment gimmick focusing on developing nations. Today, this is the organization many in the Global South want to be part of. And the reason is simple, to avoid and finally be freed from Western hegemony. We are back with Leilani Farah, Global Director of The Shift. This is a group aimed at the global movement to secure the right to housing. Thanks for staying with us, Leilani. You know, I want to start about in history. Has any country or society ever designated housing as an actual right? Oh, yes. Um, I would say all of the Western European countries have the right to housing in their constitutions. Um, several states in Africa have the right to housing in their constitutions, including uh, Kenya, for example, and South Africa. Um, many Asian states uh, also recognize the right to housing in their constitutions. The Philippines is a good example. Uh, so it is a widely recognized human right. Canada just, for example, adopted national legislation. So it's not in our constitution. I'm from Canada. It's not in our constitution, but it is in legislation recognizing that housing is a fundamental human right. And I know there's a big push, for example, in New Zealand to recognize housing as a fundamental human right as well. So, so it is, um, uh, it's out there shall we say, in domestic uh, legislation and constitutions. 
Interesting. Tell me more about this. In these countries, like you said, Philippines and Western Europe, have this in their constitution. Do these countries historically have less homelessness? Some of them do. Um, and you have to remember that the right to housing, when it's legislated, and even in international human rights law where it's legislated, um, is understood as an incrementally realized right. So it happens progressively, right? So it not everyone is going to be adequately and securely housed overnight, right? This is going to happen in, in stages and over time. Um, and so what, what we do see is in certain parts of Europe, less homelessness. I can't say no homelessness. We do know, for example, Finland is likely to meet their... 2030 goals, probably in advance of 2030 by ending homelessness, I think by about 2027. And they do have the right to housing in, in their constitution. Um, so, you know, that would be the high watermark of a state really coming good on their constitutional um, requirements and commitments. Um, but, you know, I, I would say it, it, it's hard to generalize across Europe because there's so many countries in Europe. Um, but many of the European states, while they do have homelessness, it might not be as um, acute a problem as it is in the U.S. and in Canada, for example. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't want to say that just simply because you have a constitutional right to housing, you're going to see less homelessness because there has to still be the commitment on the part of the government to do something about that constitutional right, you know, and not just wait to be challenged you know, through the courts for failing to meet their constitutional ob obligations. I should also say this. In some states, there might be a constitutional right to housing, but in order for it to have life, it has to uh, be accompanied by domestic legislation. And in some cases, a, a country will put a constitutional right to housing in their constitution but then they won't actually do the enabling legislation that that's required. And like Kenya is an example of that. So, you know, obviously that's not great. And, and so um, advocacy groups are, you know, trying to push the government to actually adopt the enabling legislation. So it's a constant um, kind of fight to get governments to do this, um, which I always, I have to admit, find kind of surprising because um, we know that societies are more peaceful and more equitable if people have decent, affordable, and secure housing. Leilani, you said some governments have it in their constitutions, but don't actually. What are the specific details you feel every human has a right to in regards to housing? Yeah, so um, let's start with a very popular myth, which is that the right to housing means governments have to provide everyone with a house. That's actually not what the right to housing means. And um, I, I just said before that housing happens incrementally. And so there's a whole variety of things that governments have to do in order for someone to enjoy uh, the right to adequate housing. Um, and so, I mean, there are cases where, of course, some kind of housing is required. So example, where people are living in homelessness, obviously that's a life and death situation. And so governments have to act expeditiously to address homelessness, and that they can start by providing shelters, for example. Um, and then from there, um, they should be moving as quickly as possible to ensuring people have access to adequate, secure and, and affordable housing with supports if they need so, you know, some kind of supports. Um, but the the un, the understanding and, and, you know, rights come from human beings. And if you talk to anyone uh, living um, 
in inadequate housing or I've met a lot of people living in what we call informal settlements. So people living in on lands that are public uh, in kind of ramshackle um, conditions, sometimes tents. I mean, you have homeless encampments in the U.S. and Skid Row in L.A. is a good example. Um, what I what I've never encountered is someone who says, oh, I want housing for free. Most people understand that housing is going to cost them something. And most people will say, I just want housing that's commensurate with my income, right? They, they want to pay, they're willing to pay for housing, but they can't pay their entire paycheck for housing, right? That wouldn't make sense because then they wouldn't have any money for food or for any other expenses, medical expenses, et cetera. And so we generally use this 30% criteria. So you shouldn't be spending more than 30% of your income on rent uh, or on housing charges. Uh, and so, so affordability is really key. Uh, and is, and, and it's the, the notion is affordable, not free, right? The right to housing doesn't mean free housing. The right to housing means affordable housing. That's one of the criteria. Um, housing is also um, only considered adequate under human rights law. If it is close to employment opportunities, uh, child care services, for example, uh, and health care services, uh, and education, high schools, elementary schools, colleges, universities, et cetera. So that's very important. And it, it also suggests that it is understood that people who are housed will be working insofar as they can work and find employment. That's why housing should be close to employment opportunities. What an important discussion, one I think more people need to have. Thank you, Leilani Farah, for joining us. You know, addressing homelessness is a complex issue which requires a range of policy and pragmatic interventions. Past strategies, which have been effective in some countries, include providing access to affordable housing, supporting education and employment opportunities, providing health and social services to homeless individuals, and working to reduce poverty and inequality. Collaborations between governments, civil society organizations, and other stakeholders is essential for addressing homelessness and promoting the human rights and dignity of all indiv individuals. Now, the weight should not fall on one single entity and is not a problem which can be solved overnight. However, the most important foundation of any house begins with the person or people who reside inside it. Unfortunately, in present day, we continue to see policies which do not support the individual to grow themselves, rather just be reliant on a government entity. Until this is reestablished as the standard and goal, there will never be a long-term solution to the homeless problem. I'm Skynell Hughes, and this has been your 360 view of the news affecting you. Thanks for watching.